Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. I'm your host, Tammy Klein, Principal Consultant with Future Fuel Strategies, and with me today is Benjamin Leard of Resources for the Future. Ben, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So, we'll go right into the questioning. So, Ben is a fellow with Resources for the Future. So to kind of start us off here, and for the listeners who may not be familiar, can you talk about what Resources for the Future does and what your role is more specifically? Sure. So Resources for the Future is a a nonprofit, non-advocacy think tank in Washington, D.C. And what we do is mostly focused on environmental policy analysis with a really strong emphasis on economic analysis of these policies. So I'm one of about 20 fellows, full-time fellows, and what we, we're basically trained PhD economists. And so we all have PhDs uh, in economics, and we, we have a strong focus on environmental policy, as I mentioned. And so what that, in, what that involves is basically uh, using uh, tools from economics to say something relevant about uh, different environmental policies, such as fuel economy standards, that's kind of what I focus on, or kind of more transportation-related environmental policies, other things like electric vehicle policy, carbon pricing policies, things of this nature. So Ben and a team of three co-authors, including yourself, you recently completed the study, What Does an Electric Vehicle Replace?, so your co-authors are Jianwan Jing of Peking University and Shenzhen Li of Cornell University, just for the, for the listeners. So can you tell us about the major findings in this study? And, you know, was there anything in the study as you sort of talk about and go through the study? Is there anything that surprised you all the most? And by the way, what motivated study. I guess we can start with that and then talk about the findings and then anything that, that surprised you all as you as you undertook and finalized it. The question, just to kind of repeat what you did, what you said, that in, we asked the question in the title of the paper, which is this question of what, what does an electric vehicle replace? And it's all about understanding the environmental benefits of electric vehicles. So the, the typical analysis in this literature is to basically swap out an electric a gasoline vehicle for an electric vehicle and then look at the the differences in things like greenhouse gas emissions from from that swap now the the important characteristic or the important feature of that of that change is the relative fuel intensity of the vehicles that are that are being swapped so you have a a standard gasoline vehicle, and you have a new kind of high fuel economy, fuel efficiency electric vehicle. But the critical thing here is how fuel efficient is the vehicle that's being replaced by the EV. So if you look at the data on fuel economy in the U.S., our studies on the U.S., the average fuel economy is around, for all vehicles, it's around 22 miles per gallon. For new vehicles today, it's around 30 miles per gallon. Uh, fuel economy standards have, have helped, uh, helped with that. Whereas an electric vehicle, you know, they're pushing 70 plus miles per gallon. Typically, they're around like 100 
the equivalent miles per gallon in terms of the, the energy units. Mm-hmm. And so there's also the variation within a, a typical gasoline vehicle. You have hybrid vehicles that are very fuel efficient. They have, you know, 50, 60 miles per gallon. And at the other end, you have, you know, large SUVs and trucks that get, you know, 20 miles per gallon. And so it really, you know, whichever whichever vehicle you're replacing, it could be a hybrid or it could be an SUV. And the difference is actually pretty big. You know, it's like 30 or 40 miles per gallon difference between like the most fuel efficient gas vehicle and the least fuel efficient gas vehicle. And so what we wanted to do is know which of those vehicles are being replaced. Is it more hybrids or is it more mm. trucks? And so we basically found that it was more hybrids that are being replaced. The, the average miles per gallon was about four or five miles per gallon more than the like the average among all new vehicles. So EVs were replacing kind of relatively fuel-efficient vehicles and more so like sedans, kind of smaller vehicles, which is to be expected because electric vehicles are, at least right now, they're all kind of sedans, kind of smaller vehicles. We don't really have an electric truck or an electric SUV yet. And so in terms of what is being substituted, it's really these smaller vehicles that get better fuel economy. And so the consequence of that is that you're going to get fewer environmental benefits from electric vehicles being in the marketplace because they're replacing these relatively fuel-efficient vehicles. So that was kind of the main the main takeaway from our paper. So what was the big surprise for you? Was there anything that was surprising for, for you and the team as you as you worked on this? I mean, was that that fact, the substitution of the degree of substitution for relatively fuel-efficient vehicles, was that the, the surprise takeaway? I don't think it was that surprising. I think it's fairly intuitive kind of why we're, we're seeing this. We didn't kind of have a, we didn't have a status quo expectation of what we thought was going to, we were going to get. We did do a couple other things in the paper that I think were surprising in terms of kind of the key results and results that might say something about policies. Mm-hmm. Another thing that we did with the paper is to to look at the question of how effective are federal tax credits at increasing electric vehicle sales. And yeah, so in can particular, you, can you talk about that? Yeah. Sure, yeah, yeah. So what we were interested in, in, in understanding is this question of it's called additionality. So if you have some type of subsidy, so in this case we're we're thinking about a tax credit for buying for purchasing an electric vehicle, a key number that policies policymakers want to know is like what is your bang for your buck? How many additional electric vehicles are you selling as a result of this subsidy? And also, how many how many vehicles are would have been bought anyway with the subsidy? So it's a matter of like how, how many additional sales are you getting from having the subsidy in place? And so we looked at this question and we found that actually a lot of the Unfortunately, kind of in, in in our time period, which I'll talk about in a bit, a lot of the a lot of the, the electric vehicles that were purchased, they would have been bought anyway, even without the subsidy. So that was somewhat surprising yeah. to us. So if you're going to buy an electric vehicle, this particular group of buyers and the time frame that we're in currently, the buyer 
profile, if you will, is these are people who believe in the technology. They like the technology. And, you know, they most likely do shorter distance driving. It's not like they're doing like long haul cross country or maybe they are. I don't know. Right. But they sort of believe in the technology they want to buy and they and they have the ability more than anything to purchase it. I mean, this is already a particular profile. So all that's being done is an additional incentive for people who fit this particular profile who would buy the, these vehicles anyway, not sort of the more the average consumer that might be maybe a little more on the fence. I mean, that seems to be what the study is is saying. That's correct. And now there are a lot of caveats to this inclusion. So we can talk about some of the caveats. And uh, it's not that these subsidies, uh, the the federal tax credit for for buying an EV didn't do anything. We actually found a pretty substantial increase in sales with the subsidy we found that there are 30% more sales with the subsidy. So like not, you know, that's like not small. It's a pretty big jump in the total quantity of, of sales of these vehicles. So that's just one thing. But a couple caveats about this result, about this additionality issue, is that our time period, it was pretty early on in the electric vehicles market. So we, we were looking at data historical data. So we have only had data from 2012 through 2014. And this is a fairly early time kind of in, in the in the expansion of electric vehicles being in the marketplace. Uh, and so another characteristic of, of our data is that most of the electric vehicles that were available during this early time period were very expensive. So we're talking about, you know, the Tesla Model S, the Nissan Leaf, these are pretty expensive relatively expensive relative to what we have today. We have the Model 3 today, which is like reasonably affordable, right? And so it's really, I think, some of some of our result about the fact that, you know, a pretty good chunk of buyers were just already going to buy the, the car anyway. This result, I think, is somewhat driven by the fact that we're looking at a particularly early time period in, in this market. And so, for example, if we were to redo our study with more recent data, we might find kind of a better outcome in, in, in terms of this additionality issue. Is that something that you all look at in a follow-up work or you know, to actually look at that or to, or to track this somehow over, over time to sort of see how it's evolving? Certainly, yeah. We were de- it's definitely on, on our radar to kind of do an updated analysis once we once we get more data. So one of the big constraints with this project that we did is that at the time when we started the project, we only had data up through 2014, whereas now we're going to be getting more recent data. Ideally, we would be able to, uh, to do this for 2018, which is when there, you see this big increase in, in, in EV sales due to the Model 3. And this is something that we're it's definitely kind of on our radar to do uh, next. So I wanted to just go back and, and um, ask you about what prompted and what motivated you all to take a look at this issue, was there some, something in, in particular. So, yeah, there are a couple of things. The first thing being the fact that we really wanted to know kind of the, the overall environmental benefit. Of, of electric vehicles that, you know, electric vehicles are kind of looked at, looked at as like a kind of a solution to the environmental or climate change problem within the context mm-hmm. of transportation. It's like a potentially 
you know, 100% clean vehicle, three vehicle. And I think that it has the potential to do that kind of in the, in the long run, you know, once the electricity grid becomes clean. But in the short run, we really need to kind of make, we need to make a, a correct comparison as to, the, um, to actually make that calculation of, you know, what are the overall environmental benefits of these vehicles? Well, like, you know, they're here now. And so to make that calculation, well, you need to know kind of what is the, what is the comparison unit? What is the vehicle that EVs are replacing? And so that was our original focus. And then it kind of, we added a few things along the way to the paper, things like, you know, what, what do we do? How, how are tax credits being, are they effective? You know, what is this additionality of tax credits? But I think, yeah, the original kind of focus was on, you know, really quantifying what are the overall emissions benefits from, uh, from these cars. One of the quotes that I want to go to in the study that kind of gets to what you're talking about, I'm going to read you the quote and then, and then ask uh, a couple of questions. Policies intended to promote EV technology and reduce emissions would be more effectively, more effective by better targeting marginal buyers and encouraging consumers who would otherwise purchase gas guzzlers such as adopt EVs. So my question is, what kinds of policies should the U.S. and frankly other countries, because I mean SUVs are growing in um, Europe and China and other places. So, what kinds of policies should the U.S. other countries be looking at, and should the federal tax credit for EVs go away? I mean, should it be replaced by something else? And and what would that be? So, what's the right policy? You know, if EVs are a good policy or a good something that we want to encourage, what's the right policy environment? And I guess my other question is, is it, is it the right policy? Are there others? So a lot of, a lot of questions in there. <laughs> Happy to, uh, to address these questions. So the I okay. guess the first one is, is the tax credit, should it actually exist as a policy? Uh, you know, is it effective? And, you know, what, are, what are the overall costs and benefits of, of the credit being in place? That's a pretty pretty loaded question. There's a lot of factors kind of going into that. And kind of one other caveat to our paper when it's addressing kind of the, the, the efficacy of these credits is that we don't incorporate some of the more long-run adjustments that could occur because of the tax credit. So, for example, one relevant feature of of whether or not someone will buy an electric vehicle is whether or not they feel comfortable with the current uh, fueling infrastructure. So there's this chicken or egg problem uh, that's been well documented in in, in the literature, mm-hmm. the recent literature, where you know it, you, you people that want to buy an EV, well, they're going to be skeptical of of this new product because they don't know where to charge their car. You know, that, whereas like the gasoline vehicle. It's yeah. it's been we have an infrastructure it's been there for a long time. What you could foresee happening is that electric vehicles are subsidized early, and then this incentivizes a large increase in charging infrastructure, which then incentivizes the people to buy more EVs in the future. Mm-hmm. And so we don't actually include that in our analysis. We have kind of a more short run analysis, and so this could be something that can make subsidies look a lot better. So that's just kind of one one caveat. In terms of kind of 
redesigning the subsidy. I think we we do speak to that a little bit in the paper as as to whether or not there are better options than kind of the current way that it works, which is basically anyone can get the subsidy. It's a tax credit, so it's based on your tax return. And there's no targeting. So what I mean by targeting is that it's not a function of any kind of like consumer or buyer demographic. So we looked at different policies, kind of still subsidy policies, but ones that were based on some type of demographic of, of the buyer. And the reason we we were looking at these alternative versions was that, so if you look at California, they mm-hmm. actually have a program where they limit the amount of the subsidy based on your income. So it's uh, it's basically done in a way that provides greater subsidy or greater incentive to low-income buyers. And so we yeah. kind of re- re-ran our model and we, we did this, some simulations and we found this kind of striking result in that if you kind of mimic the California program at the federal level, you can actually get more bang for your buck. You can get kind of more more EV sales per dollar of subsidy spent. And that mm-hmm. was pretty striking to us as a result. Yeah, I mean, I see, you know, one, I, I've done quite a bit of work as, a, as an analyst looking at, you know, electrification and, and the issues surrounding it, not just in the U.S., but, but around the world. One issue I think will sort itself out, and that is, you know, there'll be more models, you know, available. Uh, not everybody wants to or can't actually buy an I3 or ride around in a, in a LEAF. But then the auto industry starts offering sort of the vehicles that people are used to looking at, so to speak, and driving, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, when those first CUVs or crossover vehicles, for example, I think are offered, I think, you know, that'll be a, a big tipping point. But I think the other part of it that is is that I've really realized in doing this work is that Wow. I mean, people go into serious debt for their vehicles. And if you start kind of looking at demographic data, I mean, we we have a lot of people in this country that are doing well, but we have a lot of people in this country that aren't uh, doing well. I mean, they really most likely can't afford their own vehicles, the, the conventional vehicles that they have, let alone the, let alone uh, an electric vehicle. I mean, now, really, there is something to the marginal marginal buyer. I mean, that's the mm-hmm, market. Mm-hmm. The market is really not the, you know, and those people in those income levels, you know, lower than six figures, they do more driving than the people who are actually buying these yep, vehicles. That's, yep, probably, exactly. that's probably a separate, that's probably a separate study. So it's really kind of amazing because it's like, you know, the policy, you know, the there, there probably is something to the the California policy because I mean even seventy five hundred really does need to be kind of reconfigured. I mean, if you want this market to work, you have got to get you really do have to get the, the marginal buyer in there. I'm not sure mm-hmm. seventy five hundred is necessarily going to do it in the first years, but yeah, the, the, the you know looking at the demogra- demographic data. The, um, it's pretty strict. Yeah, and kind of alluding back to uh, what we were, uh, talked about earlier, kind of the fact that our the, our study time period is, is kind of early in 
it was during a time where like the average purchase price of an EV was like, I don't know, $60,000, 70000 You look at a yeah. Tesla uh, Model S and that, you know, it's like pushing $100,000, right? Yeah. And so a tax credit of $7,500, you're only taking off like 7% of the purchase price, right? Yeah. Whereas if you, if you look at something like the Model 3, which is, you know, dollars $40,000, uh, you know, in the 40s or so, the percentage off of that base is so much larger with the tax credit. And and like, yeah. so that, that difference is only going to become more, more relevant over time as uh, automakers introduce, you know, $40,000 affordable electric vehicles. Uh, and that's really only has, it's only really started since around 2017 or so uh, that they're becoming a lot more available. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, um, just you know, as a as a general question, I mean, where you know, countries are looking at a number of policies in the transport arena. They're looking at fuel fuel economy, or they're doing fuel economy, or <laughs> I guess jokingly in this country, maybe not. We can talk about that a little bit. I guess there's fuel economy is a typical sort of policy pathway. There's biofuels usage in some form or fashion, low carbon fuel standard in many countries or a number of countries are beginning to go into that area. And there's electrification. So from your standpoint as a as an economist and a fellow at future, what kinds of, and I know we're not in a time period in the particular administration that we're we're in where carbon reduction is a priority, but that will not remain the case, uh, ultimately. I think we were kind of like off the highway. I think we'll come back on at some point. What kinds of carbon-reducing transport policies should the U.S. and perhaps other countries be considering? Is it, is it a mixture of like electrification and fuel economy and or are there other things um, that, that aren't being thought of? So right now, I'm kind of echoing what you just said. You know, we do have kind of have this uh, kaleidoscope or mixture of like a patchwork of different transportation policies for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We have these subsidies that we've been talking about for electric vehicles. We have the zero emissions vehicle, the ZEV mandate in California and about 12 or 11 or so other states in the U.S. And then we also have Things like the low carbon fuel standard, and in, in the, at the federal level, we have the fuel economy and, and greenhouse gas standards for for cars and trucks. And so it's kind of a mixture. And in, in, in whether or not this is ideal, it's fairly controversial. But in general, what uh, what someone like me or other economists would say is that it's actually a lot more cost effective to just get rid of all these things and replace it with something like a carbon tax. It would be much more I agree. efficient, kind of you know, mm-hmm. from a cost perspective. You're going to get much uh, cheaper reductions from having just a carbon tax versus all these kind of somewhat complicated, overlapping policies. And yet, you know, this is kind of the reality. We don't we don't have that, at least not yet. We don't have kind of a federal carbon tax or cap and trade system in place. But there are you know kind of movements, I think, toward that. Over time, you have kind of uh, more more regional-based programs. California has a cap-and-trade program. The Northeast in the U.S. has has their own cap-and-trade program, which is now actually considering 
incorporating transportation into that program. And so I think overall, kind of over time, we do see a movement toward toward this, but I think it's going to take some time to kind of get to the point where we have some type of federal program that replaces all of this uh, this patchwork of existing policies. It definitely is patchwork. And I've often wondered, you know, this is beyond the, the scope of the study, but just talking in general in terms of transport policy, I mean, it just, it doesn't seem like, it seems to me as an as an analyst, one of the key pieces that always seems to be missing out of these policies is the consumer or the the behavior, like, you know, consumer behavior. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. do they really do these policies really incentivize behavior change? And you know, I, mean, I think that's that's the key. If you're really concerned about reducing carbon, you know, I think policies need to better incentivize consumers to, quite honestly. Stop driving. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, exactly. You know, I mean, and, either yeah, and like, some. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you have yeah. any, any comments on that because it's like, it seems kind of obvious to me, but yet policies it's, are not. Yeah, exactly. And like the, the beauty of something like a carbon tax, or you can even think of like a gasoline tax, like raising gasoline taxes as kind of an alternative way, kind of a roundabout way to, to get carbon reductions. The beauty of this type of policy, this kind of set of policies, is that it, it, it incentivizes people like you and me to reduce our emissions along many different margins. So not, not just the, the choice of what vehicle we buy. That's kind of what fuel economy standards do. They kind of force us to buy more fuel-efficient vehicles, but also the margin of how much we drive the vehicle. So if, if, if uh, we have a gasoline price in- increase, gas tax increase, or carbon prices is put in place, then this is going to raise the price, kind of the per unit cost, uh, per per mile cost of, of driving. And this is therefore, as as a rational consumer, you know, we, we care about our uh, the cost that we have. We're going to avoid that by reducing how much we drive. And so this will lead to to more kind of cheaper uh, emissions reductions as a result. We're definitely, definitely not there, uh, <laughs> definitely not there yet. But I wanted to ask you, since you've done, and this is the last question, since you've done quite a bit of work on fuel economy, what do you think of our current uh, situation with respect to not as a, a not as a, a, a political um, commentary, but just a, what is a pathway, um, kind of out of a little bit of the conundrum that we are in to fuel economy. We have a California program. We have a federal program. Uh, we have the, the auto industry that maybe wanted a little bit of uh, relief from the original Obama standards that were promulgated in, in 2017 or late 2016. You know, we have a, a, you know, we do have a situation where consumers are just buying SUVs, you know, like Tic Tacs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, what is and and we have we have an administration that sort of you know sort of is what it is for right now. We have a safe rule that's going to be finalized and promulgated any time now, sometime this year. We're kind of in a bit of a, a bit of a mess. And the thing that I see that's troubling fuel economy is it is an enabler of adoption of other cleaner technologies. So increase in hybrid sales increase in mm-hmm. 
electric vehicle sales, increase in other sorts of alternative, newer vehicles and fuel combinations like hydrogen fuel cells. Where we are now, kind of like, uh, it to me, it's like stagnation, and we're headed towards stagnation, and we're headed toward kind of like, uh, in my view, kind of like a litigation loop. We'll just kind of keep litigating and litigating and the auto industry above all else craves certainty. So what's, do you have any thoughts about our current situation and in sort of pathways out? That's a good question. Yeah. One thing I can say about that is that somewhat falls on kind of how we evaluate these standards is whether or not they are beneficial to society. So if you, if you're familiar with this this rollback, there was actually an analysis done to look at the the overall like the social impacts, the social welfare impacts of the rollback of the, the original Obama standards. And the current administration found that the rollback actually would result in an increase in social welfare for various reasons. And and so I was actually a part of a team of researchers that did a critical analysis and assessment of this analysis of the rollback. And we actually found that a lot of what was driving this result of the rollback being beneficial was based on kind of crucial, erroneous assumptions that were made to kind of get that result. Yeah. And Mm. so our team basically highlighted all the the assumptions that were somewhat ad hoc. And we found that if you basically replace them with more reasonable or justified assumptions based on the the economics literature, you would get kind of the original kind of Obama standards result, which is basically that the rollback would actually lower social welfare pretty considerably. And so we think this is a pretty relevant point to, to, to highlight for considering kind of, you know, what to do next with this next round of, of kind of updating what we do with the standards. All right. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Ben so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. And it was, it was a great pleasure of mine to, uh, to talk to you today. And if you're looking for more analysis on future fuels issues, head to my website, futurefuelstrategies.com, and sign up for my free biweekly newsletter. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.